Welcome to this AMR audio interview sponsored by the Transactions of the ASME, Applied Mechanics Reviews, and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm excited to present to you today's guest, Professor Avram Bar-Cohen of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland. Professor Bar-Cohen was born in January 1946 in Brooklyn, New York. He lived in Israel between 1949 and 1957 and returned to the U.S. in time for seventh grade. His high school years at the Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn were followed by entrance into MIT in 1963 and admittance to the Mechanical Engineering Department Honors Program in 1966. He completed his Bachelor and Master of Science degrees jointly in 1968 with a thesis on heat transfer in spray towers, supervised by Professor Arthur Burgles. In January 1971, he defended his PhD dissertation on the boiling and condensation in a liquid-filled enclosure, also under the supervision of Professor Burgles. Professor Bar-Cohen started his professional academic career at Ben-Gurion University in Beersheba in Israel, where he resided from 1972. Subsequently, he held faculty positions at the University of Minnesota between 1986 and 2001, where he directed the University of Minnesota's Center for the Development of Technological Leadership and held the SWEAT Chair in Technological Leadership between 1998 and 2001. Professor Bar-Cohen was Chair of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland between 2001 and 2010 and was named Distinguished University Professor in 2005. Since 2010, Professor Bar-Cohen is on leave through the Defense Advanced Research and Projects Agency, DARPA, where he serves as Program Manager in the Microsystems Technology Office. Professor Bar-Cohen is an honorary member of the ASME and a fellow of IEEE. He's furthermore a recipient of many prestigious awards from these two societies, including the ASME Heat Transfer Memorial Award in 1999, the ASME Curriculum Innovation Award in 1999, the Electronic and Electrical Packaging Division's Outstanding Contribution Award in 1994, and the IEEE CPMT Society's Outstanding Sustained Technical Contributions Award in 2002. In 2008, he received the Luikov Medal from the International Center for Heat and Mass Transfer in Turkey for outstanding contributions to the science and art of heat and mass transfer. Professor Bar-Cohen's research interests pertain to the foundations of thermal management of micro and nano systems, as well as technology forecasting and management. From the citation for the Luikov Medal, one reads that Professor Bar-Cohen's scholarship has centered on the field of thermal packaging, providing techniques and tools necessary for the miniaturization, increased reliability, and functional capability required by modern applications, whether for consumer electronics or high-performance aircraft control systems. He has co-authored two authoritative textbooks on the field of thermal design and analysis, co-edited 16 additional books, and published some 400 journal papers, preceding papers, and book chapters. Professor Bar-Cohen has provided extensive service to the applied mechanics community, including as associate editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews between 1985 and 1991. 
From 1995 to 2005, he served as editor-in-chief of the IEEE CPMT Transactions on Components and Packaging Technologies. He also served as editor of volumes 38 through 41 of Advances in Heat Transfer, together with Young Cho and George Green. He's the current editor of the Encyclopedia of Thermal Packaging and serves as president of the Assembly for International Heat Transfer Conferences. As a complement to his academic pursuits, Professor Barcohen is also an avid sportsman, with a semi-professional career in soccer for the Boston Tigers in the late 1960s. Following years playing for the Danish junior soccer team in Brooklyn, his high school soccer team, and later MIT. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in College Park, Maryland on November 5th, 2012. Professor Barcohen, welcome to this AMR audio interview. I'm really happy to have time to speak with you. Thank you very much. Uh, nice to be uh, reminded of some of yeah. those um, episodes in my life. It's uh, quite, a, quite an illustrious <laughs> career and a long list of, of accomplishments. So let's go to the Danish junior soccer team okay. uh, start off there. So I, I, I looked this up yesterday, uh, trying to find out exactly what the Danish junior team was. And I found uh, two uh, Brooklyn newspaper notices from 1940 and 1952 mm. that mentioned that it's a team. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's an actual mm -hmm. um, That playing in uh, various leagues, uh, American League, some Metropolitan League. Is that right? Was that the... Yeah. So the Danish juniors uh, was the team for uh, uh, players under 18 and wow. was part of uh, so and the juniors were part of something called the Empire State League okay uh, at the time in New York there were very strong ethnic leagues there was an Italian American League there was a German American League uh, the Empire State League uh, actually was sort of the non-ethnic league that uh -huh. had a lot of ethnic teams, yeah. but the the league itself was, uh, in today's uh, nomenclature, was uh, highly diverse. Uh -huh. And uh, we would play pretty much around the city, but uh, but some of the teams were further apart, were further away. And um, this was uh, uh, typically uh, leagues that would start after the school season was over. Okay. It's kind of the equivalent of what we call traveling teams okay. uh, these days. And, uh, and so the school year, the school season would be over beginning of November, and then we would be uh, provided with an opportunity to try out for these uh, traveling teams uh -huh. or outside teams, uh -huh. and then we'd play a couple of months, break for the winter, and then uh, pick it up again after that. Okay. And the Danish uh, juniors in particular, the coaches, uh, who happened to be, the two coaches were Italian, but, okay. uh, went around and recruited uh, some of the better players from the teams in the Brooklyn high schools. I see. So uh, we actually had a very good team for a couple of years. And Why was it called uh, Danish juniors? Was it at well, one point in time? Um, so we were connected, as many of the teams were, to uh, social clubs mm -hmm. and bars. Mm -hmm. And there was a Danish-American... Huh. Um, in Brooklyn. Community center, yeah, yeah. in, in the um, – um, uh, now I'm blanking on it. The um, – something Ridge. Uh, I have to go back and think. But yeah, a part of, right. uh, part of Brooklyn yeah. that, uh, that had that community. Yeah. And so we would uh, march in the – there was uh, um, various holidays uh, that mm -hmm. uh, the community would celebrate and uh, we would march in those parades yeah. and – was the um, team good? The, um, was the team was very good for yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, one year we won the this Empire State League ah. uh, championship. At yeah. the time, the German-American uh, teams were the best, the okay. German-American League. But uh -huh. uh, we beat two of those teams on the way huh. to winning championship. And, um, uh, you know, again, in the ethnic league, so typically we would play games that were preliminary games to the senior circuit playing. Yeah. 
And in particular, the German-American and Italian-American leagues uh, would draw five, 10,000 people would come huh. to a, to a community-based team game yeah. in stadia that uh, were often 60, 70, maybe even 100 years old oh, okay. and went back to the, well, not 100, more like 50. Yeah, at at yeah, this point, yeah, they'd be 100. Yeah, yeah. But they went back to the early 1900s yeah. when soccer really started in the United States. Right. And people forget that professional soccer actually started in the States because uh -huh. the immigrants coming over had amateur. begun yeah. to play in Europe, yeah. and but there they were amateurs. Right. Here, some of these guys were out of work, yeah. and they started being paid yeah. to, to play soccer. And it was a very active league along the East Coast in uh -huh. all these uh, communities, immigrant communities. This is very competitive then between the sort of different ethnic, ethnic yeah. groups? Was this an outlet of uh, uh, some tension at times? No, well, yes, there there were some uh, uh, notable fights and, yeah. uh, and out... Uh, uh, outpourings of that kind of sentiment for yeah, a while, yeah. but uh, but there were also nice dimensions to it. So along the East Coast, uh, uh, Fall River and Boston and Newark and places like that, yeah. Philadelphia, mm -hmm. uh, which is where the teams were based, mm -hmm. as well as multiple teams in New York, uh, as I was referring to, um, they would sometimes uh, play these home and away games. Mm -hmm where they would play on Saturday in one city, all get on a ferry or yeah. on the trains, go yeah. to the other city and play there on Sunday okay. with all the fans. To, to, and to build that yeah. cohesion. And, uh, and we were still playing in, in the 60s, uh, which is mainly this period that we're talking about, uh -huh. uh, late 50s and 60s. We were still playing in those same stadia. When did they shut down um, those leagues? Or are they still active? Well, um, the league still exists. They've, uh, they've evolved over time. Yeah. But the, the Boston Tigers were in something called the American Soccer League, okay. which now is the, the second. These are now the, adults. The senior right, level, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And this league uh, is now like the second or third tier mm -hmm. below the Major League Soccer. Mm -hmm. And in between, as, as you might know, there were various attempts. There was a North American mm -hmm. Professional Soccer League for yes. a while yes. that uh, uh, New York Cosmos uh, were maybe the best-known team. Okay. And there were... Uh, there was a Boston Minutemen team that yeah. was in that league. Uh, so, I, so I actually did, had to choose between yeah. uh, just about the time I was trying to finish my PhD. Right. It was a question of whether I would try out for Which the, career for the full going? professional. Really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, so I think I chose right, but uh, I'm not sure. I decided to stick with the PhD. But and, you were also so the Boston, uh, Boston was a semi-professional. You right. said so you you had some some uh, yeah, reimbursement yeah, uh, maybe right. We we got, you also uh, played for MIT at the same time or uh yes yeah. so i started playing for the boston tigers after leaving mit oh, I actually see. left in my junior year um to be able to do that but mm -hmm. i played on a team called the newton soccer club uh okay. before which uh -huh. was in a newton, new england league yeah. yeah and we we did pretty well yeah. again it was a pretty good team and then i got recruited to the boston tigers yeah. but yes as semi-pro i had to stop playing in college uh -huh. and um maybe surprisingly the 15 bucks a week that we used to get yeah. uh, was actual money <laughs> in in those days when uh we we didn't have very much and we had just got married yeah yeah and and um, and then a year or two later, the the opportunity was there to try out for the professional team. And so, but, what swayed your mind one way or the other? Well, um, 
no, no matter uh, how good I was, my uh, my physical stature, being five foot seven, uh, sort of suggested to me that maybe maybe the career path through uh, professional soccer wasn't going to be quite as successful. Uh-huh. Although, uh, again, uh, in in that era, a lot of the international goalies uh, were not as oh, large you're a goalkeeper. as I was going. Oh, no yeah. kidding. Okay. Yeah. So I was a, a very springy uh, yeah. goalkeeper, uh-huh. but uh, uh, so you know, I I. Did very well, yeah. but uh, yeah. but I decided well, that plus the excitement of doing the the work I was doing in yeah. PhD yeah. and why I was in school in the first place, sure. uh, I realized that I'd sort of come to that bifurcation yeah. and I needed to pick. What brought other you path. to engineering? So, what brought you to MIT? Uh, well, uh, I have spent a lot of my career uh, trying to figure out how we make this uh, a better world. <laughs> Uh, using technology, mm-hmm. and uh, I I grew up feeling that uh, there are a lot of ways that we can better meet the needs of people uh, through technology and the application of technology. Uh, the, the years in Israel, uh, a lot of it had to do with water and energy, and this was in the desert. This, uh, the well, university we, is in the Negev, right? Yeah, that that was later. I, I actually oh, I um, the the years I was growing up, I yeah. was in a town uh, near Tel Aviv, okay. um, place called Cholon, yeah. which actually means sand. Yes. And, uh, and so we were surrounded by sand dunes. It kind of had the appearance of a desert, but it was only uh, 10 kilometers from the ocean. Yeah. And in fact, there, there was uh, a more moderate uh, climate and, and some water resources around. But those years in Israel... Uh, uh, as as a place that uh, that saw an ingathering of a lot of um, immigrants and a lot of people who had uh, been through the Holocaust and, and escaped uh, in many cases from from that and and more difficult situations, um, the the idea that we could take a fairly barren country mm. and by applying human ingenuity mm-hmm. figure out how to make a life for people mm. and and how to deal with the human survival questions uh, was, was probably the the strongest motivation. Mm-hmm. I, I was in fact torn between pursuing uh, a career in economics and and kind of working on that side of the equation of, you know, yeah. there's there's really enough wealth around, it's just not distributed very well, uh-huh. uh, versus uh, producing the wealth yeah. In, yeah. in the more uh, general sense. Yeah. And uh, and so one of the reasons I chose MIT was that uh, it looked to me like the best combination of of economics yeah. and engineering mm-hmm. as as a place that if I decided to make the switch mm-hmm. I could. I see. Um, the the first couple of economics courses that I took were great, but uh, uh, realizing that even though econometrics was uh, was kind of emerging at that yeah. time, and that was the the MIT. Uh, approach and just the idea that you could model and predict and so forth was was very exciting mm-hmm. for a while that looked like okay this is the perfect mm-hmm. confluence of, of my interests uh, but then getting a little bit deeper into it and realizing how uncertain all those assumptions yeah. were that went into right. the economics models yes. and how you couldn't you didn't have the luxury of a laboratory yes. as you do in engineering yeah. where you can go and try this out yes. and actually see what works yes. and uh and then with minor changes in uh, in interest rates or inflation rates, all of a sudden everything looks totally different. Yeah. Um, 
in in retrospect again i've i've kind of stayed with uh, with an interest in that area but i decided that my professional efforts would probably be better devoted to the engineering side than uh, than to economics and so i i made that switch but i i did ma- minor uh, switching to the phd i did end up minoring in management of technology. Oh, yes, right. And then and you had positions center, to take right, advantage of that Right, later. so yeah. I think, in fact, that's a, that's a critical area, and I think one that we underestimate and, and underprepare engineers to think about the broader context of, of engineering development. And how and, technology is used to manage. Yeah, and and a lot of how it's managed. I mean, there are a lot of dimensions to this, and we can pursue that as far as you'd like. Yeah. But the the thing that I think engineers really bring to the game that that goes underappreciated is defining the technology landscape. Technology is not static, mm-hmm. and one often fails in the development of new products by underestimating the rate at which existing te- technology can improve or can be modified. And the classic is the Wankel engine. Rotary engines were way superior on paper mm-hmm. to what we had in reciprocating IC engines, mm-hmm. but by the time they came out, IC engines had improved enough mm-hmm. that there was no point in, in switching. Yeah, right. And and that could have been predicted in terms of understanding uh, uh, the difference between the present status of a technology and its inherent limits. Uh-huh. And, and that's the point. There are many people who do technology forecasting. Uh-huh. Many of them are economists or social scientists that have just expanded their area of interest to include technology. Yes. But they don't understand the guts the of the technology. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and understanding that uh, uh, IC engines today at the efficiency that they're at can't continue to be improved because there's a car no efficiency limit yeah. or an aircraft, uh, you know, if you hit the... Right. Sound barrier. Uh, I mean, yes, there are ways of doing, of developing supersonic aircraft, but it's not a linear progression, yeah. which a lot of people fall into and say, well, you know, the industry has improved the efficiency of the engine by half a percent a year, so we'll forecast this out. Uh, but in fact, along the way, you're hitting different uh, uh, physics of failure. Mm-hmm. And, and absolute limits that mm-hmm. have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that engineers do understand and I think could make that kind of a process um, much more accurate, much the, the fidelity would be much higher if it wasn't just based on sort of extrapolations and interpolations, yeah. but in fact included the physics yeah. that supports the technology. And that then tells you that, uh, you know, given the rate at which technology is evolving, if your particular approach can't intercept and exceed that technon natural technology development, then you probably don't have a breakthrough I product. See. I see. Uh, the other is that in terms of the rate at which you expend resources, again, if you understand where on this technology roadmap and, and where in the technology surface or landscape mm-hmm. you actually want to intercept the present technology. Mm-hmm. It will guide your investment rate mm-hmm. and in some ways uh, probably conserve resources that otherwise are just wasted trying mm-hmm. to do something faster than it can be inherently developed and maybe isn't necessary. So do you see this? Uh, uh, I would think at DARPA you would have an opportunity to think about these issues to a great degree given that DARPA has a tendency to sort of put out these uh, you know, hot, very ambitious objectives and, and, and uh, benchmarks 
Um, right. So, so that, in fact, is, is a big part of what uh, I try to do at DARPA is figure out uh, where are we in terms of the state of the art mm -hmm. of, in this particular case, thermal packaging yeah. for various electronic systems, but also what is the rate at which things are naturally evolving yeah. and where do we need to be on, on this uh, uh, technology surface? Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually uh, a topic for discussion because while roadmaps and this whole kind of technology forecasting process probably originated in DOD and is very much embedded in what DOD planners do, mm -hmm. it's often, first of all, it's focused on systems and system characteristics mm -hmm. rather than the underlying technology. Mm -hmm. And second, often ends up being classified or uh -huh. protected in, in some way that makes it more difficult to disseminate. Yeah. But I think to engage more, certainly of the academic community in yeah. general, the non-hardcore defense community, uh -huh. to engage more of those people in pursuing the technology goals that, uh, that the defense community has, I think we have to find a better way of communicating those roadmaps. Mm -hmm. um, because we no longer have the luxury of being inefficient in the way we do R&D for the defense community and the society at large. Given everything that we're going through, uh, I'm undoubtedly more on the side that, uh, that we have to continue to protect the investments that we're making, but we definitely have to become more efficient. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to become more efficient without eliminating uh, uh, promising alternatives that, that really need to be explored yeah. is to better understand what the targets Anticipate. should be, uh -huh. both in terms of the technical metrics mm -hmm. and in terms of the, the date lines, mm -hmm. because both of those make, make a big difference. So there's ongoing discussion about how to do this. Uh, uh, frankly, to a certain extent, DARPA likes to operate independently of these roadmaps <laughs> and independently yes. of, of uh, uh, technology that's being developed elsewhere. Uh -huh. and. And there's a case to be made for uh -huh, that. I think uh -huh. uh, it is important that somewhere within the federal research establishment, uh, there's some group that's uh, that's able to leap ahead yes. or re-examine areas that, that are neglected. Yes. But at the same time, if we want to see the technology inserted into systems and products, yes. we have to be mindful of, uh, of those roadmaps. Yes. And more and more, again, in terms of the efficiency of, of supporting research, uh, we have to devote more effort to closing that gap between discovery, innovation, and then implementation. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I think it's not enough to invest in the R&D and to bring forward good ideas. They have to be quickly implemented mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. systems. Mm -hmm. To implement them into systems, you don't want to start the process of implementation or product realization after the research is completed. I see. You want to perform the research with the application in mind, yeah. knowing in a particular case of DARPA that most of these things are never going to work, uh -huh. and, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, you can clearly define what the goals should be, yeah. time and, and technical metrics, yeah. so you can gauge whether you're on a path right. to success or not. Right. And if you are successful, then you know who the customer is 
and where in particular this technology could be inserted. And so this is accomplished by, by bringing academicians and, and, and industrial uh, partners together or by having teams with very multidisciplinary expertise. I mean, the kind of expertise you're talking about in technology management and yeah, broadcasting yeah. is not everywhere to be found. Yeah, and I, I don't think we have a, a clear model of, of how to do this in, in the defense context. Uh, uh, to a certain extent, we do want to mimic what takes place in the high-tech industry, mm -hmm. which is, yes, to bring together product developers mm -hmm. with the researchers, mm -hmm. with the marketing people, mm -hmm. and figure out what exactly you, you want to do. Um, it, just to kind of reinforce the point, uh, when, when I started out and in the early years working with IBM, with Control Data, with uh, some other of the electronic companies, product development cycles were five and six years long. Mm -hmm. And so the next generation mm -hmm. uh, was five, six years away. It turned out that you could probably sort of figure out the rate at which technology would improve for the next couple of years but it got pretty fuzzy by the time you were trying, trying to do six years out. Uh -huh. So it was even difficult to define what would the technical characteristics be of I this see. system. Yeah. But even more so, and, and you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute, even more so it was hard to figure out what would the marketplace look like uh -huh. six years from now. That's a huge forecasting task, which we're really not up to. Still. By, still. Yeah. By shortening the product development cycles, yeah. one of the things that you gain is actually something that's much more biological. It becomes much more like an ecology uh -huh. where every year, and that's much more the mode we're in right now, yeah. products come out more or less every year, yeah. sometimes every six months. They only need to have a 20 or 30% improvement in performance, yeah. not a factor of two or three uh -huh. or five uh -huh. that you needed if it's six years away. And you can quickly learn whether there's acceptance in the marketplace yeah. and adjust accordingly. Yeah, yeah. But if you can maintain that pace, then a 20, 30% improvement over five, six sure. cycles, you're, you're way there. ahead yeah, yeah. Yeah, of what you would have done the other way. Yeah. So that inherently has happened. Yeah. But in the defense context, the product acquisition cycles are very long. Mm -hmm. The training cycle is very long. It's not enough to even acquire a large number of vehicles or radars or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, rifles and, and machine guns, you have to, especially if these have some new features, you have to now modify your entire training uh, system so that you can maximize the benefit of this weapon system mm -hmm. and, and really take advantage of those unique features mm -hmm. that you introduced. Mm -hmm. So you end up with very long cycles that now again, push you back to trying to forecast where do we need to be 20 years from now? What is the battlefield going to look like? That's tough. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from November 5th, 2012 with Professor Avram Bar-Cohen of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland College Park. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. So it seems to me thermal management is really at the core of, of uh, I mean, there's energy in and there's energy has to go out somewhere. Um, I, I'm curious, since it's not my expertise, um, where do you see the opportunities for significant advances? Is it in the material selection side? Is it in the design and architecture? Is it in, in smart systems that, that actually has you know actuator components and, and, and uh, processing? 
um, integrated processing? What's the yeah. where's the opportunity? Well, so so in general, taking the the first part of your question first, um, thermal management is an unappreciated domain of electronic product development and, and operation. And as you correctly said, uh, we've got energy in, energy out, and an awful lot of energy just dissipated yeah. in these devices. Yeah. So microprocessors, for example, and, and logic chips are essentially heaters as far as uh, a thermal management person is concerned. Yeah. The energy that comes out in the signals is a trivial percentage, yes. is less than 1%, yes. maybe even a half a percent. Yeah. So essentially, a 100-watt chip is a 100-watt heater. Uh, RF systems, uh, laser systems, LEDs are anywhere between 20 and uh -huh. 70, 80 percent, uh -huh. but still a lot of that energy going in and especially power electronics yes. when we're talking about the uh, kilowatt level uh, systems, even 20 percent or 30 percent, and in some cases it's only 5 percent when you're talking about energy conversion hardware, uh, is still a lot of heat. Yeah. And since the Material properties are affected by temperature, yeah. and the integrity of the package is affected by temperature. If you don't provide thermal management and control that temperature, you don't have a working device. Right. As a consequence of, of that, uh, that statement, what's happened is that thermal management is often perceived almost exclusively as a problem solver rather than an opportunity creator. Uh-huh. And what we're often trying to do, fact, well, often after the yeah, fact, yeah, exactly, yeah. and and often in the sense of look, just make this work somehow. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's too hot. Right. Um, the the path that we're on, in particular with the new program that uh, that we're launching through DARPA, is to make thermal management a key enabler uh -huh. in providing enhanced performance, yeah. not just. Uh, changing the, the the temperature yeah. or controlling the yeah. temperature. Yeah. And what this means is that if you look across the board at electronic systems that today are thermally limited, that is their performance is gated, is controlled by how much dissipation they can handle through their cooling system. Right. If you had a better cooling system, you could get a lot more performance. Mm -hmm. uh, we're facing this right now with microprocessors. A uh, report out of the National Academy of Engineering has uh, kind of um, driven the community to decide that uh, we're in an era where cooling and power management are limiting our ability to stay on Moore's law mm -hmm. and to continue to enhance the performance of chips. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in one sense, we are still on Moore's law, mm -hmm. which is in terms of a number of transistors yeah. that we can Fit. create yeah. per chip, yeah. but there's more and more so-called dark silicon that is not used because they're in air-cooled systems with air-cooled heat sinks attached to microprocessors. We're somewhere around 100 and 120 watts as the maximum power dissipation. Okay. And so if you have uh, 10 billion transistors only constrained to dissipate 100, 120 watts, there's a limit to the kind of performance that uh -huh. you can get. And then one answer is the multi-core designs that we see today. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the clock cycle or the speed at which we operate the chips has remained flat for the last five, six years yeah. and isn't going much beyond the three and a half, four gigahertz right. that we're at right now. Right. Uh, if we were able, instead of 100 watts, to uh, remove a kilowatt from the chip, yeah. 
uh, A, we could run it much faster. B, we could have even, we could certainly utilize all the gates and transistors that are on there, and we could continue to put more and more transistors onto that chip. Um, This is more important than it might be at first uh, uh, perceived because when you look at the energy dissipation in in advanced chips today, um, the switching energy in the transistor is comparable to the energy required to send the signal back and forth to adjacent transistors within a particular macro cell on the on the chip, mm-hmm. which maybe involves a distance of uh, a few fractions of a millimeter or a cell that's a few million transistors, mm-hmm. which, of course, a large number, yeah. but out of the billion, yeah. this is just a small area. Yeah. Once you have to send that signal further across the chip, yes. the communication energy already dominates over the switching energy. Uh-huh. And if you have to go off the chip... Yeah you have to dissipate even more energy. And if you're going to go to a a data center in Wyoming somewhere, you can quickly figure out how much energy Mm -hmm. you're using for that. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a false economy to think that we can make systems more energy efficient by widely distributing the functionality across all these chips Uh as opposed to concentrating Uh it Uh in a single high-performance chip or in a small number perhaps stacked together. And when you start thinking about the kinds of applications that we might want to pursue, and autonomy yeah. in the engineering sense is yeah. very popular right now. If yeah. we want autonomous cars, autonomous planes, autonomous trucks, uh, we will want very compact, high-performance computers that are embedded in those systems mm-hmm. to control all the functionality and to do the data processing that needs to be done. Um, we will not get there unless we figure out how to design chips with much higher power in mm-hmm. and, as a consequence, much better cooling yeah. than where we are today. Yeah. So uh, we've, we've sort of gone through uh, uh, maybe uh, two different paradigms, and I think we're on the verge of a third. If you look at thermal packaging of electronic systems back to the ENIAC, the first programmable computer, in uh, 1946, so uh, so my life is actually parallel to <laughs> the information age so far. Yeah. Um, that that and the first 10, 15 years of uh, thermal packaging was essentially uh, an air conditioning and yeah. ventilation function. It's just we have the the ENIAC dissipated 150 kilowatts, uh-huh. putting 150 kilowatts into a room that was certainly a load for the air conditioning system. So go do something about improving the ventilation and the air conditioning system and and we'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And that went through the Mark I, IBM's first uh, computer and a few of the others. But somewhere in the late uh, 50s and certainly once the solid state transistor starts coming out in the early 60s, we had to shift to actually cooling the cabinets and cooling the card cages, uh, these printed circuit boards that components were attached to. And we've spent most of the last 40, 50 years in that paradigm of heat being generated in the chips, but removed remotely at some heat sink or coal plate with fans and pumps and and, a lot of air cooling, but but there are some liquid-cooled systems. But inherently in that kind of an approach, the interface resistances and the spreading resistances end up dominating. Mm -hmm. 
So today we're in a situation where in some of the power electronic components, more than half of the temperature rise is in the first few microns mm -hmm. away from the mm -hmm. junction where the heat is being generated. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do now uh, through DARPA, but uh, but I hope that this will find more uh, a broader acceptance than that, is trying to close that gap and and developing techniques that extract the heat where it's generated yeah. and bypass all these parasitic resistances. Okay. So this is intra-chip cooling, yeah. which... And that's through material selection? And that's through, through, through uh, uh, using microfluidics. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is uh, material selection as well, so it's going to have to be a combination of microfluidics yeah. and in particular evaporative microfluidics. Mm -hmm. um, by going to an evaporative mode, you can take advantage of the latent heat, not just the sensible heat. And that means that the flow rates that you need are much more modest. And especially, we're not talking here necessarily about a single microprocessor in a laptop, but a supercomputer, mm -hmm. a high-performance computer that could have a thousand of these uh, mm -hmm. elements. And, and the flow rate and then the pumping power gets to be a very expensive investment mm -hmm. unless you can pull down the flow rates. So by by relying on evaporative cooling and yeah. using the latent heat, yeah. you can see a 10 to 1, maybe 100 to 1 wow. reduction in flow rate, yeah. which is a massive improvement sure. in pumping power. Yeah. Um, and, and bring that fluid as close to the junction as you can, yeah. but then having a high conductivity Yes. Thermal interconnect, yes. whether it's a high conductivity substrate or it's just like we do with power, having vias that are thermal vias within the structure oh. that even if it's copper, that's already a factor to improvement in conductivity relative to silicon. Mm -hmm. And if it's uh, uh, bundles of CNT or if uh -huh. it's diamond uh -huh. or if it's other materials yet to be discovered, uh, what we've neglected is doing for thermal what we do for power. And that's a lot of where this uh, conceptual inspiration comes from. No one would design a logic chip and then go, oh my God, I forgot about how to bring the power in and out. Uh, that's an inherent part yes. of the design. Yes. Thermal has taking been left, yeah, right, it's basically yeah. taking yeah. power out. Yeah, that's right. So when you design that chip, having paths for the heat to flow right. to the coolant and having the coolant as close as possible to that heat source is the key to getting much better performance. And 30 years ago, there's a very well-known uh, study by Tuckerman and Pease. Dave Tuckerman left IBM, went to Stanford, mm -hmm. did his PhD thesis on micro-channeling chips mm -hmm. and flowing liquids mm -hmm. through that. Mm -hmm. uh, his work was with water that in many ways is less acceptable because of the non-dielectric nature of, of water and some of the corrosion concerns, yeah. but gives you a very, very powerful thermal management yes. capability. Uh -huh. The ice cool program, as we're calling it, which is for intra-chip enhanced cooling, uh, for now focuses on dielectric liquids. So these are the fluorocarbon-based or uh, fluorine-based fluids that uh, in an evaporative mode can again get us to the kilowatt level per chip. Yeah which would be 10 times ahead of where we are uh, today. Is there, I mean, is there a limit? Is there thermodynamic limits that one can predict? Or are, are we really talking many, many decades of factors here um, of improvement? Well, um, if, we, if we look at, at the evaporative cooling with water, and if we made it uh, DI water, so that we don't have the electrical concerns, mm -hmm. and if we 
passivated some of the exposed surfaces so we wouldn't have the corrosion concerns, mm-hmm. uh, we could probably get to 10 kilowatts per chip. Mm-hmm. Moving from 100 watts to 10 kilowatts uh, is probably 100 years of mm-hmm. development in the electronic industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of some of the points that I made before, yeah. uh, having a little bit more cooling capability and putting more functionality on that chip yeah. allows you to get very significant improvements. Yeah. Uh, of course, the other paradigm that we're dealing with on a packaging side is three-dimensional chip stacks. Yeah. And again, um, that's a, a, another argument, another factor that's forcing us to reconsider the traditional remote cooling paradigm because the back of the chip where we used to attach the heat sink or the cold plate now has another chip attached to it. So we either have to cool the chip itself or one of the things that we anticipate and uh, was in some of my earlier work but is is also part of this ice cool paradigm is to use the gap between the chips. Yeah to uh, move the coolant through. Uh And just the inherent micro gap that Uh exists in a stack uh, could serve as the cooling surface, as well as then be a conduit from which liquid could flow up and across the chip itself. Uh, So I think these two things, the power dissipation and the three-dimensional packaging paradigm are forcing us to reevaluate where we've been. So where, where does this res, uh, expertise reside? Is it, I mean, a lot of what you're speaking of is electronics and, and stacking chip you know, uh, layers and whatnot. Is that in the electrical engineering community? Um, is there enough of it in the mechanical engineering community? Is there a role to play for mechanical engineers? Yeah, I mean, it, the thermal management of, of electronics and a lot of my early years uh, at Raytheon and then uh, uh, through various interactions with the industry involved educating mechanical engineers to the fact that there was an opportunity here. At the smaller scales. At the smaller yeah. scales, uh, to, to paraphrase that, the famous quote, but a lot of space more, here. yeah, more <laughs> so that, you know, it's, it's natural that that semiconductor technology started out in the non-mechanical world, but uh, so many of the issues of packaging and heat removal and manufacturing are really mechanical engineering and industrial engineering Mm -hmm. concerns Mm -hmm. that if that transition hadn't happened 20, 30 years ago, uh, we would not have the the system characteristics and the improvements that we see today. Mm -hmm. So that uh, for the last 20 years, Thermal management of electronic systems is a very key area of of activity for mechanical engineers trained in thermal fluids and yeah. and uh, uh, thermal mechanics and and, and are the other aspects. So, preparing the students and uh, yeah, so at uh, Maryland in particular, we actually have a very well known uh, center, CALS, that focuses on uh, initially on reliability, but. Um, brings the physics of failure approach mm-hmm. to electronic systems and and tries to develop models and methodologies for enhancing the reliability of systems by overcoming those those failure mechanisms mm-hmm. that are unique to various packaging and mm-hmm. and chip technologies. So here in particular, that's a division in the mechanical engineering department. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that we offer thermal and heat. And that includes. I mean, we've got. Some courses that are within that division, yeah. electronic uh, electronic products and systems, it's called EPS, 
but there are also courses within the thermal fluid division mm-hmm. that look at this, and and a lot of our graduates take courses from from both mm-hmm. uh, divisions, and then uh, get that kind of preparation. But um, there's uh, the Interpac conference that. Uh, that I helped to put on its feet uh, 30 years ago. There's the iTherm conference, Mm -hmm. which uh, ASME does with IEEE, but it's actually owned by IEEE. But these two conferences bring mechanical engineers together to focus with their electrical Uh brothers Uh and material scientists Uh and so forth on these issues. And uh, and are quite successful meetings that yeah. that. Um, Where would you say internationally the the, the centers of, develop, of progress and development, the really strong groups are, and or I, I guess it's also partially based on the industry that's prominent in certain parts of the world. Yeah, in in terms of the um, more personal systems, and you know the 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 products that grew out of. Uh, um, Recording and and the Walkman kind and onto consumer electronics and in all its different dimensions is probably strongest in Asia. Yeah, and uh, and it's evolved from more of a Japanese focus to uh, today more of a Chinese focus with uh, Singapore and Taiwan active and and other countries there. Great expertise in the area that you're speaking of. Right, right. Although more in fabrication and less in design, but they're rapidly moving up that uh-huh. uh, that food chain yeah. and taking on more and more responsibility for design yeah. because, uh, as you well know, when when you do the manufacturing and when you're involved with manufacturing, you naturally have access to the issues that yeah. then need to be addressed yeah. in the next generation. You learn, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But having said that, power electronics uh, is very strong in Europe. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, power electronics today, whether it's because of uh, concern about the energy mm-hmm. and energy efficiency uh, or whether uh, because of uh, systems that uh, rely on RF yeah, for communication, yeah. well, all the energy yeah. uh, systems yeah. really not only require more efficient power electronics mm-hmm. but have forced uh, – the a miniaturization cycle mm-hmm. on this industry, which uh, somehow they they avoided for the for the last couple of decades. So, uh, yeah, we've had IGBTs and and other power electronic uh, devices that are fairly compact. Uh-huh. But if you look at a power plant or if you look at a grid, you look at the transformers, they're still very very macro yeah. and don't need to be. And in particular, if we want to make these smart grids. Yes then we have to embed logic into yeah. those systems yeah. for the various control functions. So understanding better how to operate power electronics with nearby logic components and then connecting all these into systems and embedding all the smarts. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, we're right back to autonomy again. Mm-hmm. If we're going to have an autonomous vehicle mm-hmm. that's an electric vehicle, everything can be packaged together, but what that's meant is that the power electronics is in many cases today driving our design and development efforts. Mm-hmm. And and so that's brought a focus back to Europe that's yeah. kind of been outside 
the the microelectronic world for for many years yeah. but has continued the Siemens yeah. the uh, Philips uh-huh. kind of companies uh-huh. in Europe have uh-huh. continued to develop that technology yeah. Yeah. and today it's very much uh, very much in the fore as far as R&D You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from November 5th 2012 with Professor Avram Bar-Cohen of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland College Park. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. So I'm curious, uh, there, there's got to be, a, on the other side, the flip side of that equation, using less energy yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Um, is that outside of the realm of, of a thermal engineer? To... No, no, I, I, think, I, I think you have to not do one to the exclusion of the other. Mm-hmm. So I think whenever possible, and we've seen tremendous improvements, if we switch back to logic, uh, we probably had uh, uh, four or five orders of magnitude improvement in the energy required to switch a transistor mm-hmm. uh, over the 30, 40 years that I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. We still are four or five orders of magnitude above the minimum energy that would be required in terms of information theory. I see. Uh-huh. But we've cut that gap probably yeah. in half over the last uh, uh, three or four decades. Uh, on the other hand, I would argue that we are not well calibrated to thinking about the benefit of operating these systems even if they require significant energy. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the leading supercomputers today, uh, the Japanese supercomputer, the K computer, the IBM, Deep Blue, Blue and waters, whatever yeah, version, yeah, yeah. Um, are on the order of a megawatt or two. Mm. Now, that sounds like a lot of power, mm. but the typical nuclear power plant that, that you refer to is 1,500 megawatts. Mm. So we could run five, 600, maybe 1,000 supercomputers with a single nuclear power plant. Mm. If we can't figure out what to do with those computations, let's do not it. do it. Right. <laughs> But in terms of all the things we know that we yeah. require better understanding, yeah. if we had a single dedicated nuclear reactor in this country that ran a thousand supercomputers, mm-hmm. imagine what impact that would have mm-hmm. on our ability to understand, to forecast, mm-hmm. and to operate systems. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I'll go back to the point I made before because I believe in it very passionately. Better thermal design yeah. allows you to make the system much more efficient. Mm-hmm. And IBM itself has an example which I often uh, quote in, in my uh, lectures. and. Uh, IBM took one of these supercomputers from an air-cooled design to a water-cooled design yeah. to a better water-cooled design yeah. and was able for the same functionality of, uh, of something like 100 teraflops move from a few megawatts of power dissipation in an air-cooled system to several hundred kilowatts uh-huh. in a water-cooled system mm-hmm. where the liquid was not quite what I had described before yeah. as the ice cool, yeah. but was very close. Mm-hmm. The chassis itself on which the components were mounted is water-cooled. But they were able to show that, that you could move down in that, that path. Yeah. The other side, which is also very important, and, and IBM itself as well as other companies are pursuing that, is if you look at the total system requirements, which include the heat exchangers yeah. that now have to reject the heat to the ambient, if you can pull the heat out of the system at a higher temperature, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the heat exchangers on the outside shrink very drastically in size. 
So if you're bring if you're operating your components at 85, but the liquid is coming out at uh, 50, mm-hmm. then uh, and and the ambient could be at 40. Yeah. You've got 10 degrees. That's a pretty big heat exchanger. Yeah. If you now bring the heat out at 80 degrees, still five degrees below the junction temperature. Okay. And by the way, when you move to power electronics that operate at 150 or 180 or 200, yes. you can take that temperature all the way up to those levels I with see. a few degrees below. Okay. But let's stick with the microprocessors. Yeah. You're bringing the heat out at 80 degrees. Mm-hmm. You've just gone from a 10 degree delta T to mm-hmm. a 40 or 50 mm-hmm. degree delta T, and, and you can shrink the system or yeah. perhaps don't need fans yeah. and just rely on natural convection yeah. or whatever modifications yeah. you want to yeah. make. Yeah. So the impact of bringing thermal management into the design process right from the start mm-hmm. and putting it on the table with the logic and the power mm-hmm. is is enormous mm-hmm. and i think we can address these energy issues mm-hmm. through that mm-hmm. as well as consider that when you have natural convection cooled systems as many of these data centers have gone to yeah. uh, the cabinets are very far apart yeah if you have heat sinks they're fairly large heat sinks if you do a total energy calculation and consider the energy of fabrication and the energy right. required to build a large and data center, yes, yeah. uh, you've given away a lot of the benefits of sure. miniaturization and compact systems, uh-huh. which we can reclaim uh-huh. by doing this kind of intense cooling right at the chip itself. Uh-huh. So I think we definitely can address those issues, but I don't think that we should we should be asking what is the cost benefit of investing the energy, thinking that, gee, you know, we have to keep all these systems to 100 watt chips Mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense when you put it into the broader context. Um, In in our correspondence prior to meeting, you you mentioned uh, living in a geodesic dome back Mm -hmm. in uh, Israel. This is uh, in in Beersheba. This is in Beersheba, right. And, And you built it? Uh, I uh, had it built. Build it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we we had an architect uh, and a contractor who actually brought kits yeah. of uh, prepared sections yes. that could be assembled on site. But this is and, a dome. Uh, it's like a semi-sphere, hemisphere, yeah, hemisphere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so he partially brought, for thermal management purposes. Well, or? yes, because yeah. so so it turned out. Uh, well, yeah. The principle is if you can minimize the surface area. Right. And and while people think of the desert as uh, as of course arid arid <laughs> yes but but posing yeah. a heat problem yes. actually in many deserts cold, including right. Belsheva it's yeah. the cold that's yeah. the bigger problem yeah. so minimizing the surface area and insulating the so so this was built out of uh, uh, two by fours that created triangles. Hmm. And then the triangles could be assembled into pentagons and hexagons Mm -hmm. and then built in with some windows cut out on the geodesic dome. We were able to um, uh, put in polyurethane foam in the gap, uh, essentially uh, four inches thick next to the two by fours. And the shape plus the the insulation then made it possible for us to get through the winter and through the summer, essentially relying on the waste heat in the winter, just from the refrigerator, we did have a small gas wow. stove, huh. but um, yeah. but it's not only do you minimize the surface area, yeah. but the shape for those that that are thermal fluid types. Mm. You know, you get a pretty thick boundary layer. The fewer interruptions you have, uh-huh. wherever the wind hits, uh-huh. that area is going to feel more cold. Uh-huh. But then the boundary layer wraps around the structure, yes. and the heat losses from the entire structure yes. are minimized. So you have low area, uh, small area, 
low heat transfer coefficients yeah. and the insulation. Yeah. Uh, we actually did very well. Is the structure still so, there? Um, the structure is still there. Yeah, we sold it about seven, eight years ago. Yeah. But uh, um, yeah, it was great. Our kids was uh, this quite innovative at the time, or there were? Uh, I mean, you said yeah, that someone was actually selling these. Right. Like, so I think there were uh, maybe ten in the whole country, uh -huh. and uh, we convinced our uh, a friend who became our next door neighbor yeah. uh, to build a geodesic dome as well. Yeah. So there were two of us okay. next to each other. Yeah. Uh, there were a few still standing in a lot. Uh, uh, the same uh, architect, uh, Daniel Altman, uh, mm. built the uh, Marine Museum in, in a lot. Okay. Uh, the, it, there's a structure that goes underwater, of course, but yeah. the uh, this part that's above ground is a geodesic dome. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, my father was a plumber and... Uh, I grew up in uh, all the years in high school working with him, so uh, I did the plumbing and uh -huh. we did a lot of the electrical. We needed a professional licensed electrician to approve it, and uh, he was a guy up the road, but I did most of the wiring. Hmm. Um, we ran into an interesting problem because uh, the code in Israel involves having a box high near the ceiling. It's for the then, electricity? Yeah, yeah, for the, for uh -huh. the electricity, yeah. and then you pull the wires down. Yeah. This is a little bit tricky compared to the U.S. because it's at 220 and yeah. so uh, and, and people use a lot of water for washing the tiles mm -hmm. and in uh, in their homes so the code evolved in such a way that, that they had to have a junction yeah. box yeah. high up and then yeah. you came down well yeah. in the dome it's all open yeah so where do we put these boxes uh -huh. we had to get a special dispensation yeah. from the inspectors uh, we ended up doing a combined outlet and box that, uh, so there were no pillars gave. or anything in the structure? No, because the entire... Because it just so, held itself up. Yeah, yeah, so this is about 40 feet high wow. in the middle yeah. and 40 feet in diameter. Yeah. And we had a, a cinder block ring yes. that was about a meter high. Mm -hmm. And then the dome sat on top of that. Mm -hmm. But there was no ceiling in a lot of the room, right. in a lot of the space. Right. Uh, we did close off part of it uh, for bedrooms yeah. and the other half. Yeah. But uh, two-thirds of the house was just open yeah. into the ceiling. Yeah. And then we had some skylights that we would open up. And yeah. uh, on a summer night, that uh, was, uh, was just great. So we'd close the, the uh, skylights in the morning, yeah. just lock everything up yeah. uh, thermally. And we'd get through the 42 or 43 degree uh, centigrade heat. heat. And then, and then the at night, when nights, yeah, yeah, we could just open that up and yeah. open some of the side windows and yeah. just flush the whole thing out. Yeah. So yeah. it was great. So. So I, I've, in your record, I also read about um, uh, extensive professional service in a variety of ways. And of course, your, your current position at DARPA is very much a matter of professional services and academician taking so much a position. Um, how, do you, how do you weigh that uh, against your own research program you know, and your, your duties towards you know, undergraduate students and graduate students and, and balancing the professional commitments. Yeah, uh, exactly as you've said. I've always made this uh, very big part of my career. Um, I I think one can't underestimate the importance of providing that kind of service. Uh, it's also very rewarding whether working with uh, professional engineers and giving them tools and skills that they didn't have, or uh, seeing kids coming in and getting excited about the the profession. So that uh, uh, I really see the the role as a department head, the, the years that I spent doing that, 
uh, earlier in, in the centers in Minnesota. And it, it's really a continuous path of service, uh, trying to do what I could mm -hmm. to give back to, to the system that uh, that gave me the opportunities that, that I've had. Um, in, in many ways, uh, I think one has to recognize as you go through your career what your strengths are and, and where you can be most effective mm -hmm. for the profession. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I've, I've been blessed. Uh, maybe it's just uh, limitations of my own ignorance or uh, talents that came from uh, my parents, both of whom were teachers, uh -huh. to communicate in, in a clear way lessons that I've learned. Yeah. That uh, that maybe other people didn't struggle as much to learn, mm -hmm. but once you learn them, um, there's uh, just a great desire to share this uh -huh. insight and understanding yeah. with other people, so yeah. that uh, they don't have to repeat yeah. the mistakes that yeah. you made. Yeah. Uh, Alan Krauss, uh, who passed away last year, and and I uh, started these uh, courses at M at uh, ASME. Uh, uh -huh. I guess it's uh, 30 years ago now that we started doing short courses. It, it's in the period that I was referring to before where the electronic industry was kind of realizing that they need some more talent. They need to bring in other disciplines to deal with the thermal management, the manufacturing, the thermal stress that leads to failures. And there weren't very many mechanical engineers at that point who – uh, could see well enough that, that there was a career path here mm -hmm. for them to work in the industry. Uh, and, and so in the early years, uh, and, and I think uh, with Alan's uh, efforts, uh, we, we really built the ASME professional development program. Mm -hmm. In those years, these were the most popular courses. Uh, we yeah. would do three days, we do five days, two days with, uh, with 100, 150 people. Mm -hmm. Uh, attending and um, and and that was great to see that you can quickly bring, bring people up to speed. Mm -hmm. And what I've always enjoyed, and I was a big part of the management of technology uh, efforts at uh, at Maryland, where we actually uh, created, or I, I wasn't the uh, the the first uh, person to do that, but came into that role, uh, created a management of technology master's program here uh, at Minnesota. Oh, at Minnesota, mm -hmm. yeah. To, uh, to help engineers, again, understand the broader context yeah. of what they do, but also to, through these short courses and through various training modes, give them the skills they need to have to be successful in, in a new area mm -hmm. and in applying their, uh, their skills in, in new ways. Mm -hmm. uh, working with students, undergraduates is great. Working with graduate students is great. But there's something even more rewarding about working with professional engineers mm -hmm. who have been around the block a few times uh -huh. and, and have learned things, yeah, yeah. Uh, often bring insights that you wouldn't otherwise have yeah. from their experience. Yeah. And this confluence of a new set of challenges in their experience and, and dealing with that uh, in, in an untraditional classroom yeah. setting um, has been a big part of my career. and. Mm -hmm is very rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, I think in part what we're trying to do with DARPA is again educate a part of the community to the opportunities that exist mm -hmm. in redefining, as I had suggested earlier, uh, thermal management as an opportunity creator, mm -hmm. not just as a problem solver. Mm -hmm. 
It's been delightful talking to you, Professor Barcon. I really appreciate all your thoughts. It's been my pleasure, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll we'll get some people to understand some of these uh, points. Very good. No, thank you. you. Bye bye. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Avram Bar-Cohen from the University of Maryland, College Park. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.